0: Stay hungry, stay foolish.
1: Hard to say when the human species fractured exactly. Harder to say when this new talent arrived. But Lion Zorn is the first of his kind, an empathy tracker, an emotional soothsayer with a felt sense for the future of the we. In simpler terms, he can spot cultural shifts and trends before they happen. It's a useful skill for a certain type of company. Arctic Pharmaceuticals is that type of company. But when a routine M-tracking job leads to a discovery of a gruesome murder, Lion finds himself neck deep in a world full of eco-assassins, soul hackers, and consciousness terrorists. But what the man really needs is a nap. A unique blend of cutting-edge technology and traditional cyberpunk Last Tango in Cyberspace explores the topics like psychology, neuroscience, technology, as well as ecological and animal rights issues. The world created in Last Tango was based very closely on our world about five years from now, and all technology in the book either exists in labs or is rumored to exist. We welcome award-winning journalist, executive director of the Flow Research Collective, world-leading expert on high performance, and multiple New York Times bestselling author and author of Last Tango in Cyberspace, Stephen Kotler. It's a great pleasure to welcome you to the show. Thanks for having me. It's good to be with you. There's an underlying theme that there's a fracturing of our species in existence now.
0: That is definitely one of the things I wanted to look at. And it's sort of everywhere in evolutionary theory, right? You go everywhere throughout human history or hominid history, and it's very rare. That there was one dominant species of hominid on the planet, right? Throughout history, there were a lot of us. And if you sort of track it, the general thinking is that we sort of hunted everybody else out of existence. But the fact that there's just one hominid species is really a freak of time, of when we live. So a lot of people are saying, hey, technology is starting to fracture the species in unusual ways. There are other forces that I kind of explore in the book that seem to be fracturing the species in unusual ways. And for certain, this is the century that we're gonna leave the planet, right? We're gonna become a multi-planetary species. That's niche creation. That's exactly what drives evolution. So we, we've come through this little blip in history where we were the only hominid around and it's about to shift radically.
1: You hint that that cultural fracturing shows up in language, music,
0: art, and in fashion first. One of the ideas deep at the heart of the book, the book explores what I call countercultural evolution. And the idea here is that innovation rarely takes place at the center of any system. Systems are just too stable. The center is too stable. It's designed for safety and stability. So innovation always has to take place on the fringes. And we have different terms for this. In evolutionary theory, they call this niche creation. In business, right, we call it a skunk works. You don't want to do your innovation in the heart of a company because the company is going to rebel against it. So you move it to the side, you build a skunk works, you divorce it from the company, autonomous lines are reporting, et cetera. And that's where, you know, it's been one of the great drivers of innovation over the past 150 years. And in culture, this is counterculture. So if you want to watch where the world is going, you want to watch what's happening in counterculture. And what's happening in counterculture now is we're getting these giant mashup global. I call them polytribes, but they're mashup subcultures because subculture went visible when the internet happened, suddenly every little weird culture everywhere popped up on the internet and people could find each other and find other cultures. And they started blending things together in weird ways. And I think we're going to see more and more and more of this going forward.
1: You focus on collaboration a lot in the book, and there's a great line I pulled from it here. Darwin told us that scarcity drives evolution. Only two ways to deal with scarcity, compete and fight over dwindling resources or cooperate and create new resources. And life seems to favour the latter over the former. I love that man because that tells us what's happens in business, and it's happening more and more in life. We need to collaborate more, which I feel is why you focus
0: so much on empathy and understanding one another. You know, uh, so a bunch of years ago with Peter Diamandis, I wrote a book called Abundance. The future is better than you think, and Abundance examines how accelerating technology gives us the ability to kind of really go after grand global challenges, poverty, energy scarcity, water scarcity, those sorts of things for the very first time and, and actually succeed um, at these challenges. But ours was not a techno-utopian argument. We don't believe at all that technology will do this automatically. We think to kind of meet the challenges of our time, be it climate change and species extinction and on and on, um, we're going to need technology, of course, but we're going to need the largest cooperative effort in history. In our opinion, it was abundance or bust. And I, you know, that same thing, kind of that same ethos still weaves through here. And I think now more than ever, right, the IPCC and their recent climate change report gave us 12 years to halt global warming, Otherwise, we're going to, you know, trigger a catastrophic slide. Researchers at Stanford recently found that we have three generations to tame down species extinction before ecosystem services start shutting down in earnest. And we can't survive that either. So these are real, real problems that need really fast solutions. And we have the technology to solve them. What's needed is the cooperation. And, you know, really the first step in cooperation is empathy as you brought up that's where this starts being able to kind of see things from another's perspective being able to feel things from another's perspective that's where true collaboration cooperation really really gets going at speed so that's why the book focuses on empathy
1: what i loved Stephen, was where empathy came from and it was our own collaboration as a human species with wolves i'd love if you shared that with the audience
0: that is fascinating. yeah it's it's one of the shocking scientific detective stories ever So it starts, I don't know, middle of the 20th century, and primatologists, people who study primates, start asking really weird questions like, wow, all the traits that we associate with humans, right? Our vaulted humanity, our loyalty, our patience, our willingness to take care of the old and the sick and the poor, our ability to feel empathy, all this stuff, it's not present in primates at all. It's nowhere in the primate kingdom. So Ethologists, people who study animal behavior, started asking themselves, well, if it's not in primates, where the hell did we get it from, right? Like, this is, this is literally the stuff we're proudest of, and we can't find it in our genetic lineage. And what they realized is, and the new thinking is, and a lot of this is a work of a, of a brilliant Hungarian ethologist named Vilmos Kassiani, and I'm absolutely certain I'm slaughtering his name because I don't speak Hungarian, but um, I'm glad you said it, man. <laughs> I was going like, to say it. I was it, like- it but it's, I, I don't think it's right. Um, but I'm, I'm brave <laughs> enough to do it. Or stupid. Either way, he figured out that most of all these traits are incredibly present. First of all, in canids, specifically in wolves. And we teamed up with wolves forty thousand years ago. We co-evolved with wolves, and it started with our refuse piles. Right? We we produced a lot of garbage. Uh, We lived in camps, we produced a lot of garbage, and the wolves wanted our garbage. So they essentially became our sanitation managers. And this was great. Cleaner camps, healthier tribe, longer lives, evolutionary pressure, more kids, etc., etc. So this was an, an advantage. And evolution starts selecting for these traits over time. And then it goes from garbage disposals to wolves have better hearing and better senses of smell. So they become our alarm systems as well. And now we're alerted to danger earlier than ever before. And once again, we live a little longer. We have a few more kids. They survive a little more. Again, evolutionary pressure. Pretty soon, they come into our beds. They become our bed warmers. And then the real step forward is we start hunting together. And when you co-hunt with wolves and packs we could take down much much bigger prey so we got more meat more food more evolutionary pressure but here's the thing wolves are a very social species they're very loyal they're very patient when wolf pack members are injured they will take care of them they will bring them food they do the same thing with their elderly they exhibit a tremendous amount of empathy very very different from humans and other primates but to cohabitate with wolves right we had to live in something much bigger packs than we normally lived in we went from small families to big groups of 10 animals around it and we don't share a common language so the only way we could co-evolve with wolves is to take on these same traits loyalty patience empathy etc cetera, etc cetera. so the new thinking on where our vaulted humanity comes from something we learned from wolves which is astounding. I loved what you said in the book.
1: Religion has been trying to get us to treat each other fairly for eons with little success. But 10 years after empathy enters our language, slavery is abolished, women's rights movements begin, and animal welfare isn't far behind. Language crystallizes
0: nebulous. I love that. This is the innovation show and how does innovation happen, right? Innovation is basically we turn thoughts into things. There's an actual neurobiological process that underpins innovation, right? Innovation is an answer to scarcity, right? We cooperate, we innovate, we make new resources. So it's evolutionarily driven into us. And there's a process for it. When we are innovating, right? When the brain is innovating, the first thing to turn a thought into a thing, you got to be able to describe it, right? So when we put language around something, right, that maybe it's existed for a long time, we haven't had a word for it or it's brand new. And suddenly we have a way of talking about it. We can suddenly, our brain is really good at symbolic manipulation. And once we have language, we can move this thing around. We can think about it. We can evolve it. We can develop it. So really fundamental to the innovation process and empathy is this great example, because this is this feeling, right? That shows up 40,000 years ago when we start cohabitating with wolves, but we don't really have a way to describe it. And, in the 1800s they start to a bunch of different thinkers and scientists start to realize that empathy is different than sympathy and compassion which were the earlier words and that this is a different feeling and really it comes out of the art movement they're trying to figure out how is it that when you know an artist paints a painting hangs it in a museum and then i walk up and see it i suddenly have the same feeling the artist had while painting it like it communicates feeling through a medium and what the hell is that And this is where the idea of empathy first emerges, but it gets dropped into language. And as soon as it shows up, animal rights movement kicks off, anti-slavery movement kicks off, women's rights movement. All of a sudden, we can feel for another and all these things start happening, right? The first step towards any really big innovative process is language and being able to talk about it, put it, you know, put it into symbolic terms and manipulate those symbols. And it's the same is true, you know, with empathy. And, you know, essentially huge social movements.
1: I pulled another line, no stories, no empathy, no empathy, no culture. And it's this idea of emergent storytelling. I'd love if you shared a little
0: bit about that. Emergent storytelling is a, it's a spooky, weird idea. This phenomenon started to happen on the internet, mostly on Reddit, where that people started doing collaborative storytelling. Somebody would start a horror story and somebody else would add on to it and add on to it. And one of these horror stories was a horror story called Slender Man. And then it jumped out of fake internet world into real-life world when two girls from Wisconsin in the United States tried to kill a classmate. They tried to reenact the Slenderman murders. So it went from fictional reality into real reality. And now, by the way, it's going to become, I think, a Netflix miniseries or an Amazon miniseries. So it's going back into fiction. And they call this process emergent storytelling. It's collaborative storytelling that veers in and out of reality. To
1: flick to another concept you mentioned, and this is to do with products. Because it's the innovation show, I pulled this one specifically out. And by the way, to the listener, I'm not giving anything away but from the book. There's so much in this book. It's so dense with knowledge that it can bring you down so many different rabbit holes. But you, you mentioned in the book, products are for the dead. Kodak did products. Products are a finite game And it's all about an infinite game. And you mentioned here, Bookminster Fuller, one of the heroes of the show. Bookminster Fuller said, don't try to change human behavior. It's a waste of time. Evolution doesn't mess around. The patterns are too deep. Fuller said, go after the tools. Better tools lead to better people.
0: So years ago, I heard Stuart Brand talking about this, and I absolutely agree. And I've thought about it very deeply for animal rights, right? It's b- human behavior is very deeply embedded. It's embedded in the neural architecture of our brain, right? The entire philosophical movement and neurobiological movement, known as structuralism, is built on this idea. Human behavior is just neurobiologically programmed, right? It's been the same for a very, very long time. Structuralism, you know, defines it's not really easy to change. The easiest way to change people is to provide them with new tools. And this is Kind of always been historically true, and if you look, whether it's fire or the wheel, you know everything that drives f- people forward and really changes culture a lot. It's tool based. So, I when I started looking at environmental issues back in the in the nineties, I would say, and, and in the early thousands, I it was really clear from being a journalist and covering the environmental movement that um, it it wasn't going to work. Right, it, trying to wake people up to the fact that the planet was slowly dying. Was not it was not working? Wasn't solving the problem fast enough? And I, you know, I had interviewed. I interviewed Stewart Brand, and a light bulb went off in my head when he said it. And I started thinking, how do we apply this to the environment? And I started doing research. And I, my big concern was biodiversity, so I started looking at things like cultured beef, growing steak from stem cells and things like that. Vertical farming that kind of moves the farm from the country to the city. All these new technologies that are emerging that give us enormous leverage over the environment. And so you don't have to try to change people's behavior, right? You don't have to say, no, 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 stop eating steak. It's killing the planet. You can say, no, no, here's steak that we grew from stem cells in a lab. And we've done really amazing things to it. We fortified it. So it's got better fats for you than normal steak, amino acids, etc., etc. It's much more healthy. No animals were harmed along the way. And, you know, an enormous amount of our resources were saved. And it's an economic driver, right? I, I've always believed that business has to be a force for good not only can business be a force for good i think business has to be a force for good i think there's no other way to get this stuff done i'd love to share a bit
1: you talk about paul Shepard again back to this idea of animals the undertone of animals we
0: used to think in animals i love that he's a brilliant man not too many read him because he's a philosophy sort of an environmental philosopher from the 70s and 80s Uh, and nineties. But he, his point is that literally like our speech is peppered with it, right? I'm as hungry as a wolf. She's as, that's the 800 pound gorilla in the room. Like we literally, they were our first metaphors. The natural world was our first metaphors for things. So when we were trying to, you know, explain what things look like to our, to our newborn infants, well, that thing was as big as a hedgehog, et cetera, et cetera. So, literally, we learn to think in animals, and Shepard's point is that, like everything else we learn to think in, this exerted strong evolutionary pressure and shaped our uh, our brain in ways that we don't understand. And his point is, if we continue to extinguish the natural world at the rate that we're doing it, we're going to create neurological problems for ourselves because we learn to think in animals and the natural world, and it's built into the architecture of the brain in ways we don't understand which I think is a really neat idea.
1: This is where you get to the idea of we're fracturing the web of life. If we're damaging animals, if we're damaging the environment, it's reflecting right back on us.
0: You know, I I spent a really long time trying to alert people to the fact, hey man, species die off rates are a thousand times greater than normal. And you couldn't get people to listen. This was not just my problem. This was the entire kind of environmental movements problem. And one of the ways around it was guy named Paul Hawkins and a guy named Amory Lovins, Amory runs the Rocky Mountain Institute, one of the better, two of the better thinkers on environmental problems in the world. They decided they were going to calculate the value of so-called ecosystem services. So biodiversity is the web of life, right? And the web of life supports all of our ecosystems and ecosystem services are all the things that ecosystems do for us for free. That we can't do for ourselves and it's a really long list it's flood protection disease prevention water filtration climate stabilization and the list goes on and on they're 36 in total and the value of them is roughly 40 trillion dollars a year which is more you know at the time they calculated it was more than half the global economy so we can't pay for these things ourselves and we can't survive without them and this is when I said earlier that researchers at Stanford have figured out we have three decades to stop the kind of the sixth grade extinction, which is what they're calling kind of the mass die off right now, um, or ecosystem services start shutting down in earnest. and hugely, hugely significant when that happens. And most people don't think we can survive. So it's, just, it's a hard message to get through, um, but critically important. And I think this is one way of talking about it, right? Talking about fracturing the web of life and and just, I don't, you know, there's all kinds of spiritual, emotional, non-monetary values to nature. And I don't want to shrink those down, but just the economics is astounding. It's a good
1: way to position it, because that's the language business speaks, is economics. As you said, language changes culture, and your work here is a way of getting into the culture, getting into the zeitgeist, getting into people's vocabulary. Hopefully, I really hope this is made into a Netflix, Amazon, or a feature movie, I can see it happening, man.
0: Okay. So, Aiden true story. I've got a really close friend. His name is Burke Sharpless. I went to college with him. I've known him forever. He is a started out as a screenwriter and now he's a writer director producer. We've been wanting to work together on something forever, and I wrote the book with him in mind and for him. And turns out he made this little series for Netflix called Lost in Space, that <laughs> turned out to not be so little, right? So they signed him up to this like crazy multi year deal. Um, so the guy he can, can't he can't do it. So it was literally written for the screen, television or a movie with a sci-fi director in mind and he just got sucked into other projects. But yeah, I'd love to see it. It's cinematic and I wrote it that way.
1: You really did a great job of bringing it to life. Which brings me to, we have a quick word from our sponsors. This show is brought to you by Arctic Pharmaceuticals. (laughs) Only joking, man. (laughs) The reason reason I say that is in the book and this isn't giving away anything, I'm not spoiling any plot here. The Arctic Pharmaceuticals actually go after the pipeline. So they go after influencers, podcasters, et cetera, to control the messaging. And I think there's a really, really serious undertone here. And your background as a journalist brings that to life even further.
0: Well, I mean, so Arctic Pharmaceuticals, right, they're trying to commercialize a drug that has, let's call it psychological performance benefits, right? Let's just, for, for, for lack of a better term, they're taking a legal street drug right? Trying to patent it before anybody else and then trying to commercialize it. And what they've been doing is they've been stockpiling and paying off slowly a global network of health and high-performance podcasters to pump out their drug. And we've seen this, right? I mean, the entire world is bathing in ice thanks to Wim Hof. And is it great? Is it not great? The research is still ongoing, right? There are, there are interesting effects, but it's global. It's a phenomenon. And it was spread by podcasters. This is a phenomenal strategy. It would absolutely work. If you had a new drug and you wanted to spread it around the world, podcasters are the way to go.
1: And here as well, and again, not giving anything away, but you mentioned an AI scrubber, scrubbing information from the net. This is
0: serious, man. I, I really was like, crap, if that yeah, gets out a, there, a- we're all in trouble. That's a creepy one, right? That you can start going back. In a, I mean, right. Like One of the things about the internet is you may not be able to trust it, but you can track the history usually. And if that starts to be compromised, it, things get really weird. And we're moving that direction, right? Fake news, we're getting unbelievably good at using AIs to create fake realities. And we're starting to get good at using AIs to scrub real reality from existence, which is really strange. That's sort of like AI Stalinism, right? We're going to rewrite the history books.
1: Yeah, and, and another one you mentioned is, uh, and this one totally made sense to me was a uh, high-speed patent AI. Like, patents ahead of some
0: new patent. This one, my invention, but I mean, I just looked at what's going on with high-speed trading, and I'm looking at what's going on with patents and innovation. And if the rate of innovation keeps accelerating, you know, there's you could easily put yourself into that chain in the same way. It's, I mean, it's it's just high-speed trading for patents. I mentioned earlier on, Stephen, the fracturing of the species.
1: And there's mentions in the book, you mentioned Temple Grandin, the great Temple Grandin, but you also mentioned autism a lot in the book as well. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. The idea that we're fracturing
0: the species, this is this is not new. Uh, the Nobel laureate Robert Fogel talked about it called the techno things along those lines. So as I and I said that earlier, but one of the things that really caught my attention is In Silicon Valley, something really unusual has happened over the past 30, 40 years, which is coming up to fairly recently, if you were on the spectrum at all, right? if those were the challenges you were up against, you were sort of a pariah, you were sort of a social outcast. It had problems for you and it didn't really lead to a lot of opportunities for uh, mating. Let's just put it that way. What happened in Silicon Valley, because people on the on the spectrum are fair, have elevated math skills, basically, whiz-bang math skills and abilities there that, that are amplified, right? you It's one of the things that you get from being on the spectrum in certain cases, right? That became really prized in Silicon Valley. And suddenly, people on the spectrum were getting hired in droves. And obviously, they're going to parties, they're getting drunk, they're having sex, and on the spectrum is mating with on the spectrum. And if you keep this up, right… The brains of people on on the spectrum work differently from our brain, from other people's brains. There is no such thing as normal. I don't want to put it that way, but they work differently. And when you start kind of breeding different with different, that's what fractures the species. And this is, I talk about how Frank Herbert, who wrote Dune, saw this coming in a really weird way. He talked about mentats, like human logic bombs. And he talked about breeding and training people into this in Dune, which was written back in the 70s. I just sort of picked up the idea and went, holy crap, it's happening in Silicon Valley. And it's also empathy, right? The other, the flip side of this, not even the flip side, but another version of this is people talk about being empaths all the time. You hear that word everywhere these days. I took M trackers as an extension of that, but I started to say, okay, you know, the ability to perceive empathy, like we sort of understand perceptually what that would be. And it's slightly different, right? Slightly different different from how brains typically work and you start breeding empath with empath with empath and pretty soon you're at tracker. and that was another thing that i was looking at
1: to flip that around then because on the show we often talk about human performance stuff you do and flow human potential T- pushing it further than it is today what skills do you see as necessary obviously empathy is one what skills do you see as necessary for us for the world the way it's going to rapidly change as
0: you say in the book this is the world in the next five years this is not a new argument for me, but you know, I have long maintained that flow, right, which is an optimal state of consciousness where we feel our best and perform our best. In the state of flow, kind of all of the brain's information processing machinery is jacked up. We take in more information per second, so data acquisition goes up. We pay more attention to that incoming information and flow, so salience goes up. We find faster connections between incoming information and older ideas, so pattern recognition increases. And then we find faster and farther flung connections between ideas. Lateral thinking increases as well. This is sort of how we process data, right? And what happens in flow is we can process more data per second. So in a massively accelerated world, this is, I think, going to be fundamental to performance. And I, you know, I don't even think it's it's just us. I mean, we're seeing this in business at the Flow Research Collective. The organizations we're working with at this point, you know, they stretched the gamut from kind of where you'd expect it, professional athletes and spec ops, but they go to like Morgan Stanley and Accenture, straight up business firms to tech companies like Google. Everybody wants an advantage. We know in flow, for example, in business, you're 500% more productive. This is McKinsey's research, not ours. They did a 10-year study on top executives and they found that top executives are five years, 500% more productive in flow. So you got to start thinking about that. First of all, we're starting to see this spread into the mainstream. I think this is what's happening for people to try to cope with this, this speed of change. And I think it's the adaptation that we need. I think we're going to kind of meet the world's challenges, right? It's not just everybody cooperating, but it's everybody at their very, very best kind of cooperating together. And, and flow is how evolution shaped our brain to perform in its best, right? It's hardwired into everybody who's human and it's optimal performance. So this to me is at least the first step. In solving that challenge. And I don't think it's, by the way, I, everybody wants to propose like their thing. This is my thing. So it's a, obviously the solution to the world's problems, right? <laughs> freaking Right. I, I don't just think it's, I think it's flow plus the technology, plus a lot of really smart kind of ideas about how to use the technology at scale, whether it's crowdsourcing, you know what I mean? Stuff like that. There's a lot going on, but I think flow is a, a definite component of it
1: purpose and vision comes up a lot with people and particularly everybody says the millennials need a purpose and all the company they work for needs to purpose you you mentioned that briefly in the book but there's a great line you say here the human brain does information acquisition like you said pattern recognition and goal direction give the goal direction system a goal and you give the pattern recognition system a purpose and the information acquisition set system a target cortisol levels drop it's why you believe
0: everyone needs a mission for starters, purpose is just foundational because it's a, it's one of the basic human motivations, right? We've got a bunch of really powerful intrinsic motivators and one of them as, uh, and this comes out of self-determination theory. This is, uh, Rob Ryan and Edward Dietschy's work originally and Dan Pink built on it, but autonomy, and purpose are three of the big intrinsic motivators. We're driven by this. And I tend to think of it slightly differently because curiosity and passion are also intrinsic motivators. So the way I think about it is the goal here is you want to sort of turn curiosity into passion and passion into purpose, and then add autonomy and mastery to the mix. And by doing that, what you've done is you've stacked up all five of the, the body's most powerful intrinsic motivators, right? So what that gives you is performance for free, in a sense, focus, attention, motivation, get out, all that stuff is so hard on a day-to-day basis, right? I always said the funny thing about high performance, peak performance, if you know the world's best performers, what their lives usually look like is wake up, eat breakfast, have 10 items on a checklist. They're excellent at all 10. And when it's all said and done, they eat more food. They have some kind of active recovery protocol. They usually connect with their spouse, their wife, their lover, they have some kind of social support thing. They go to bed and they do it again. That's what high performance looks like over and over and over again and for years on end if you really want to accomplish anything. And for that, you need as much motivation as possible. So purpose, big part of that, right? It's not the only thing in the stack. But, and the reason, by the way, so uh, let me put this in flow terms. Flow follows focus. So this is a state of optimal performance, right? And it only shows up when all of our attention is in the right here right now. That's one of the really big deals about purpose, right? We pay more attention to the things that we believe in. It's not Mystical, it's not woo-woo. It's literally, if you look under high performance, most of what you're gonna see are things like habits and attention. These are really big levers in high performance. And so if you can get focus for free, right, you want it. This is also why fear is a fantastic motivator. It's another one in the in this stack. People don't think of it that way. But with fear, focus comes for free. We can't help but pay attention to the shit that scares us. So one of the things that I think is great. The entrepreneurship is people are routinely going after the challenges that this scare them. And it's great because you're getting performance for free and you're going to need it over time, right? Because these are hard games. Based on that, then, with the Flow Research Collective, you
1: work a lot with businesses and bringing flow to business. But this idea of reinvention, so the business is spent, it's old, it's done, like we mentioned Kodak earlier on, based on products. How do you bring somebody or some business to a point of their
0: mission is spent they need to reinvent and find a new mission. So that's interesting. Nobody's actually asked me that question before. I think I'm going to give you the exact same answer. I just so I wrote an article for Forbes years ago that you can find online called The Passion Recipe and it's literally the multi-step process for how do you turn curiosity into passion and passion into purpose. And it's it's a fairly I mean I could walk you through it if you want me to. But it's a fairly straightforward. Multi- it's not easy, but it's a multi-step process. I would put an organization through the exact same process because you want to find if the organization's skills are exhausted. First of all, you want to go someplace where there's there's curiosity and there's passion, right? Like you want to you want to go someplace where there's energy. I always say that like the reason you want to do this is curiosity, right? Which is a low grade motivator. Is it's great. Right. But it's not enough to stick with you for the long haul. So what you want to do is you want to look for the places multiple curiosities intersect, right? Where three or four or five curiosities intersect. That's where you'll find a passion. Right. And then you take your passion and you say, okay, here are the 10 global challenges I'd like to see solved in my lifetime that I think matter. Where does my p- passion connect to it? Ah, it links up there. This is the one I'm going to go after. That's my purpose. That same process essentially could be done organizationally. You, whether is it the whole company who's going to have this discussion, is it the board who's going to have this discussion? You know, those are interesting questions and you know as well as I do like the most feared words in the world coming out of a CEO's mouth is okay folks, now we're going to innovate. Right? <laughs> yeah. It's just nobody in the organization wants to hear that in this that's sort of your DNA, right? In a tired company it's certainly not your DNA. And I think it's very, very tricky, right? And I think a lot of companies won't, aren't going to survive that kind of reordering. Maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's a bad thing. It is hard to tell, but it's certainly one of the reasons that corporate longevity is shrinking so much.
1: There's so many places to find you, but where's the best place to find you to book you for keynotes, to find your books, to find your blogs, all that kind of thing. And maybe the Flow Research Collective as well. Where can people find all those outlets?
0: So the easiest place to start is just my website, which is S-T-E-V-E-N, kotler com or the Flow Research Collective, flowresearchcollective.com. Award-winning journalist,
1: executive director of the Flow Research Collective, world-leading expert on high performance and multiple New York Times bestselling author and author of today's focus, Last Tango in Cyberspace, Stephen Kotler, INI, me brethren. That's an awesome sign
0: oh up. <laughs> <laughs> a good sign up.
1: Nice one, man. Oh, nice funny. one, nice one. Are we good?
0: Yeah, we're great. That was fun.